John chapter 20 and seeing the impact of the resurrection that it is having upon Thomas, one of the disciples. And it is our prayer and it is our hope that this impact that it is having upon Thomas is the same effect that it has upon us as well. So with that in mind, let us begin reading John chapter 20 from verses 24 down to 31. John chapter 20, verses 24 down to 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to him, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nail and place my finger into the mark of the nail and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. When t- and to this time, Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood in their midst. And he said to them, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, "You have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are are not written in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have this this glorious truth of the resurrection before us, and I pray that we would be like Thomas, that we would come from our unbelief into belief, God. And I pray that You would release these shackles of death and unbelief from our hearts and our minds, God, and bring us a full revelation of who You are. God, have Your Son reveal Himself to us in this time, that we might worship Him, that we might be drawn to Him, as Thomas was and proud, loudly proclaimed, my Lord and my God. Heavenly Father, work this in our hearts and in our minds during this time. Amen. Amen. So where are we going to be going in this sermon? Well, the main idea is the main idea of John, of the Gospel of John, is that we are to believe. We are to believe so that we may have life, and life alone in Christ. That's the main idea of John in this Gospel, and it's the point of this text, and it's thus the point of the sermon as well. So how does that happen? Well, you see in verses 24 through 25, we see this caustic unbelief of Thomas. He wants nothing to do with Christ. He's burned, he's jaded, Perhaps that's you. That's verses 24 and 25. You see this caustic unbelief. Then verses 26 through 29. You see something happens and it changes from caustic unbelief to this profession of faith and adoration in Jesus Christ. And then finally, verses 30 through 31, we see the imperative, the thrust behind John's writing. And that is that we are to believe and to believe in Christ.
So where are we going? That's where we're going. That we must believe in Christ to have life. We see this caustic unbelief of Thomas transformed into profession and adoration. And then we must believe as well. So let's have a little recap of what's been going on and transpiring. On Thursday, they're having this final supper. And as you know, Jesus Christ gets arrested. They have this mock trial and he's crucified. Then on Friday morning, Joseph, Varimathea, Nicodemus take his body hastily as his sun is beginning to set. And they prepare his body for burial and they put it in the empty tomb and a stone is rolled over it. On the first day of the week, three days later, Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene is going out to repay her respects to Jesus Christ. And she gets there and something unbelievable has happened. The stone has been rolled away. So she runs. She gets John and Peter, who they themselves now run to the, to the tomb. And John outruns Peter. He gets there first and he starts to kind of peer in a little bit. Peter being Peter runs in behind him, pushes him aside and comes right in and beholds the empty tomb. And what he sees there are these linen wrappings that Joseph and Arimathea and Nicodemus had been wrapping Jesus Christ in and they were strewn on the floor as if someone had stolen the body and they got left behind and just laid on the floor. But no, they were neatly folded and placed where they should have been. Then Thomas, or John, the author of the Gospel here, peers in. You see in John chapter 20, verse 8, he peers in, he sees the empty tomb and he believes. He, he writes of himself, up until that point, he had no idea what the Scripture meant when it said that he must rise again from the dead. He was blind, but now he could see John. Then on the evening of that first day, Jesus Christ appears then to the rest of the disciples as they're gathering together. They had gathered together. They locked the doors out of fear for the Jews, people, and what they might do. But Christ comes and shows Himself, appears to them, shows them His hands, and shows them the wound on His side. And where that leaves off, then our text begins. So let's go back to the text in verse 24 and 25. We see Thomas's caustic disbelief. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, who is called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. That meaning the first time that Jesus appeared to the other disciples. So the other disciples, they told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas, he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never, I will never believe. And there's much fear in our land now uh, through disease spreading. And we have a, 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 a viral crisis that has now turned into an economic crisis. Um, but we are still doing well, comparatively speaking. We are still doing quite well. Um, many around the world don't have either food or shelter or water. And so, because we mostly, most people in our society have these things taken care of, we develop new fears to have 
Apparently, I've been told there's a new fear out there, which is called the fear of missing out. Is a, a new fear that is a crippling people. But do not fear. You will never miss out as much as Thomas missed out. He missed the resurrection. Christ appearing to the disciples. He takes one week off. Go to church. He takes one week off. Doesn't gather with them. That's the week that Christ comes and appears to the rest of the twelve. You know, and his friends, being his friends, undoubtedly, they told him all that had happened and how great it was and how glorious it was. And you can just imagine the needling and the ribbing that had gone on throughout that week. Not only what they had seen, but what Thomas, foolish Thomas, he was probably known as, had missed out on. So Thomas, he responds though in disbelief. And it's easy for us, is it not, to, to jump onto Thomas, to call him doubting Thomas, to think of him as a skeptic. But just imagine everything that had gone on over those past several years. He had left everything to follow Jesus Christ. He had impoverished himself to follow this itinerant rabbi, Jesus around the Sea of Galilee, and then down into Judea as well. Others had fallen away. They wanted to to even bury their parents, but Thomas remained. Thomas was with them, and he was one of the ones that had eaten for three days. He was with them, and then he took part in the feeding of the 5,000. He was there when Jesus cleansed the temple, He watched as Lazarus came out of the tomb. But now this one who had supposedly had power over death had now even himself succumbed to death. So you see that Thomas isn't really a skeptic so much. He feels betrayed. He has given all that he has to Christ. And he got burned. Perhaps you feel the same way. And Thomas, you feel like yourself, watch all of your hopes and dreams die. So on this one hand, you can commiserate with Thomas. And you see that he, from his own perspective, He had been burned by Christ. But on the other hand, look at what his expectations are. What are, what are his demands? He's, he's demanding his own evidence that Christ give the own evidence to him. He, look at pronouns in verses 24 and 25. You see, I, 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 my, my, my. He's, he's not accepting the testimony of others as you have done if you are in Christ. But he is demanding that Christ come to him and bring his own evidence that Thomas is demanding of him. He demands that he come to him on his own terms. For Peter and for John, the empty tomb was enough. But for Thomas, it was not. And so he leads to this emphatic declaration that I will never... Believe. It's, it's the strongest negation possible in the Greek. 
I, it's, it's like he's saying, I will never, no, not never, you think I might, no, I will never believe. Not gonna happen. Not currently, not in the future. So you see that we're often frustrated in our own lives because we're like Thomas and we, we have a skewed version of who Christ is and what he is to accomplish, but it's given to us quite clearly in the Old Testament. We see that this coming Messiah was to be the seed of the woman. That he is to redeem us from the waters of judgment by his own hand. That he will be the one to guide us and sustain us as we wander through the wilderness. As we come finally into the promised land. It'll be the one upon, he'll be the one upon whom all of the iniquity of us all will be laid. And you see in Hosea chapter 6 that He will be raised on the third day. Hosea writes, Come, chapter 6, verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He might heal us. He has struck us down that He might bind us up. After two days He will revive us. On the third day He will raise us up that we might live before Him. But when we approach Christ on our own terms, as Thomas did, it will inevitably lead to frustration and to unbelief. Christ has come to do what the Father has commanded Him to do. And so when we see Christ through, through Scripture and what the God and the Father would have Him to do, then we know that He is perfect, perfectly obedient. But we think so highly of ourselves, do we not? We think that Christ will come to fulfill our own expectations. But He will not. No, He is perfectly obedient to the Father. So do not approach Christ from your own perspective. Rather, no, put yourself under Scripture and approach Christ on His own terms through Scripture. So He is faithful, not to us primarily. He is faithful to God the Father. And by the doing that, He is faithful to redeem His people and hold them safe for all times. So you see here in verse 24 and 25, you see this caustic unbelief of Thomas. of saying, I will never believe. Well, Thomas, of course you're not. You're not accept, accepting the testimony of Christ. You're not seeing Christ through the vantage point of Scripture. You're demanding that He come to you on your own terms. But something happens. Pray it's happened in your own life as well. Something has happened into this life of Thomas that leads him from this caustic unbelief to profession and then adoration as well. So let's go back to the text and read verses 26 through 29. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. And so, 
John is giving us, when you're reading narrative, you'll see that the, the author will give you clues as to what's going on in order to interpret the, this, the story properly. So you see here, eight days later, so this is happening again on Sunday. So what is Sunday? It's not, it's day one. Of day one, God creates. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then this is again day one on Sunday. So John is writing to us by giving us these clues that this is a new creation that is going on. And you see it unfolding in the life of Christ, in the life of the other disciples. Now you see it unfolding in the life of Thomas as well. And the doors are locked, undoubtedly, uh, because they're afraid of the Jews. Jesus comes in through the locked doors. The people freak out, as would I, as would you. And he tells them, it's okay. Peace be with you. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. And then, with all of this, this love, he turns to Thomas. And he tells him, put your finger here. Put, see, see my hands? Stick out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but rather believe. And Thomas's heart was changed in an instant. And you see, and it wasn't seeing his hands, it wasn't seeing his side, but it was the revelation of Jesus Christ himself that had changed his heart. And he simply responds, My Lord and my God. And now what, what Thomas is communicating is absolutely profound. Now the, the Jewish people made many mistakes coming back from exile. One of the things they did really well was that they held high reverence and high regard for the name of the Lord. And they wouldn't just throw it around. But here is Thomas saying, my Lord and my God, my Lord. This is the very name that the Lord had given to himself in Exodus chapter 3. And it's, So Thomas is saying, you have complete dominion. You are my Lord. You have complete dominion over my life. And that he is God. He is the supreme ruler. And that he has power over all things. So Jesus Christ in the flesh is my Lord and my God. And so there is no clear pronouncement that Thomas could be making to uphold the sovereign deity of Jesus Christ and the finished work through the death, the burial, and the resurrection as of Jesus Christ through the simple pronouncement of my Lord and my God. But you notice how personal Thomas makes it as well. It's not just some abstract deity out there floating around, as, as culture would love to have you believe in. You believe in God? Good. But no, Thomas makes it personal. He's saying, my Lord and my God. So anything less than Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, to have Him as anything less is to completely disregarded. So you see with Thomas, the true problem wasn't the lack of evidence before him. That's not it. 
the true problem with Thomas was his blindness. Christ was with him. Christ had been with him the whole time. So we we like to think, oh, if we could only have more evidence, if we could just have more evidence, then I'd be able to put Christ above science, and then I'd be able to put Him among above all the other gods. We just want more evidence, and we want more evidence. But we must be willing to admit, perhaps it's our own blindness. We want more evidence. But we must see our own blindness. So what overcame Thomas's doubt then? Christ standing before him again. It was his personal revelation of Jesus Christ. He never did stick out his hand and place it into his, into the fingers, into the, into his hands. He never did put out his hand and push it into his side. When he saw the revelation of who Christ was, he proclaimed, my Lord and my God. So what do you need, my friends? You do not need more evidence. You can never have enough evidence if you want evidence. You need a personal revelation of Jesus Christ and who He is to believe. Anything short of that. An empty tomb. You want evidence. You have an empty tomb. It's still empty. If you don't believe in that, You will never believe unless Christ comes and appears to you as He did to Thomas. So pray to God that Christ would reveal Himself to you. That's the only way for you can go from saying, I will never believe to my Lord and my God. How you get from here to here is not more evidence. To go from, I will never believe to my Lord and my God is a personal revelation of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will do, my friend. So what do we do? Number one with this text, we we see our own blindness. You want evidence? That's fine. You can have more evidence, but you will never have belief. You will need to have a revelation of Jesus Christ. So we see our own blindness. And then we must see that we, we, we can't come to Christ on our own terms. We must come to Christ on His own terms. So what do we mean by this? Well, Thomas still believed that um, Jesus was a good rabbi. Thomas still believed that he was a a good uh, moral teacher, did he not? Uh, he still believed that Jesus was one who would go around and feed the poor and the needy. And he had all of these things right about Jesus Christ. But he denied that he was the risen Savior and Lord of all. And because of that, Thomas said, you, or Jesus said to Thomas, you do not believe. You can have all of these things right, but if you don't have them, you have nothing. So then, who is Christ for you? Is he allotted as a great moral teacher? In your heart? Well, yes. Yes, he is. Is he upheld as the greatest of humanitarians? Even without his own foundation, by the way. He's a great humanitarian. And of course, yes, he is. Is he the perfect example of how we are to love our neighbors? 
Well, yes, he personifies that. All of these are true. And culture would love for you to believe all of these things, but they will push you aside when you say, no, he alone is the way back to the Father. Is to believe through the resurrection, Jesus Christ. So we can't come to Jesus on our own terms. We can't just say, no, well, I think you're a good moral teacher and think that that's enough. We can't just say, no, you're an example of how I'm to love my neighbors and think that that's enough. Jesus says to Thomas, you still unbelieve. You, you don't believe. Unless you believe to Him, believe in Him and come to Him as a resurrected Lord and Savior, you have no belief. When we come to Christ on His own terms, on His terms, then He will hold us fast and He will keep us. And we will still have Him as a great teacher and humanitarian. All of that's true, but He must chiefly be the risen Savior and Lord of all. So when we come to Him on our own terms, that is when He will say to us, I never knew you. But we must accept Him for who He says that He is. So then, what do we do with all of this? We see Thomas transitioning from this caustic unbelief, pushing aside everything that Jesus had done through His death and resurrection to then adoring Christ and crying out to Him and, and beholding Him and loving Him and cherishing Him. Crying out, my Lord and my God. We see this dramatic transformation. Well then, what, what are we to do? Well, thankfully, Thomas, uh, John gives it to us. Uh, let's go back to the text here in verses 30 through 31. Wrap it up here. Verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written down in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The Gospel of John is beautifully crafted. Beautifully crafted. And you see that you must respond to these truths. You cannot be ambivalent to what is happening here in the text before you. Either you believe in them or you continue in your unbelief. And you see this in the first 11 chapters, they call it the book of the signs. You have these seven different signs that John is bringing before you, the work of Christ, either bringing people to believe or to continue in their disbelief. The first one is the wedding in Canaan. He turns the water into wine, the sign of wine being the sign of the new kingdom that is coming. And what happens then? You see in chapter 1, verses 11, this says, John writes, This is the beginning of his signs that he did in Cana for Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed. Chapter 4, he heals the royal officials, son in Capernaum, which is on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And the result of that is that this official, in all of his family, they believe. Then you next chapter down, chapter five, you have this healing at the near the pool of uh, Bethsaida. And this man who had been lame for thirty-eight years. Thirty-eight years he was lame. Christ comes to him and says, Go, pick up your mat and walk. And he does. 
Immediately the man, he, he became well, he picked up his man and he began to walk. But how did the religious elite, how did they respond? said, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Here you have the feeding of the 5,000 that we talked about earlier. They had walked with Christ for three days and three nights without any food, without any water. And Christ had compassion on them. And through the disciples, He feeds the 5,000. And then the people respond. They say, truly, this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Or Jesus, He walks on water as well. And then in chapter 9, He heals a man who was born blind. He never had seen. And He heals them. He heals him. And here you have two different kind of responses going on. The Jewish authorities, they say, this man is not of God. Why? Because He healed him on the Sabbath. But the man who was physically blind and now could see, is also spiritually blind, but now he can see. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Then finally, in chapter 11, Jesus' friend, Lazarus, is dead in the tomb. And Jesus comes to the tomb after he'd been in the tomb for three days, let the reader understand. And Jesus Christ says, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus comes on out. And many of the people, John writes, many of the people saw what he had done and they believed in him. They see the work of God and they respond in belief. But not everyone does. Go down to verse 54, chapter 11. The Pharisees, from that time on, they planned together to kill him. So friends, you see that you cannot remain ambivalent to the claims of Jesus Christ. Our culture will say you can have Him as one of your many gods, put Him on the shelf with success and sex and everything else, and He's fine right there. Just keep Him right there. But no, the Bible says either you will believe or you will unbelieve. You will carry on in your caustic unbelief and you will rather kill Jesus than believe in Him. That's what the Bible says. Don't believe that you can have Him a little bit, like culture would say. Either you will not believe or you will believe. There is no middle ground here. But John is saying, this whole book, this whole gospel is crafted to bring you to this crisis. You see in all of these other seven signs, how the people react with the unbelief and belief, unbelief and belief, unbelief, believing. Others wanted to kill Christ. And he's bringing it to this point and saying, why am I writing this gospel? So that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing in Him, you will have life in His name. So this Gospel, it wasn't written for the the bride and the groom and the wedding of Canaan. It wasn't written for the royal official and his son who was healed in Capernaum. It wasn't written for Lazarus. It was written for you to bring you to this crisis point where you will wrestle with this and say, do I believe or do I not? And you see how you get transformed from unbelief to belief is a personal revelation of Jesus Christ. So cry out to Him that He would reveal Himself to you in this time. Be like Thomas and allow the resurrection of Jesus Christ to transform your heart. That you will cry out with the multitudes, My Lord and my God. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the resurrection of Your Son. And with all of this, this chaos going around us, God, we know that You will resurrect us. And as Christ has been brought back to the Father, so too will You bring us back to Yourself through the finished work of Christ. So God, let us carry on. Not in unbelief, not in fear, but God with true belief and truth. Res- resolution that you will carry us on and bring us back to you, God. I pray that you would bring us to a place of believing in you and in the resurrection of your Son. Amen.